Revolution I can't get no call to action But I try and I try and I try and I try Hello and welcome to Call to Action, the go-to podcast for anyone trying to make sense of the world of marketing, advertising and beyond. In an industry that is a minefield of utter bollocks, we aim to capture our heroes and allies from the front line to have a chinwag with. It's like Pokemon Go, with the single but vital exception that it's not a short-term bandwagon of shite. It's brought to you by Gasp, and I'm Giles Edwards, co-founder and MD. Today, I've caught Phil Barden. One of the most brilliant minds in marketing, Phil spent 25 years client-side at the likes of Unilever, Diageo and T-Mobile, before taking the mantle of MD at Decision Science Consultancy Decode, pioneers and world leaders in this fascinating new field. Phil is also the author of Decoded, The Science Behind Why We Buy, which delves deep into decision science and is one of the most important and enlightening books on marketing to be published in recent years, being heaped with praise from the likes of previous guest, the brilliant Rory Sutherland. Phil says, decision science offers a way for marketers to step into the boardroom and leave la-la land behind. Welcome to the show, Phil. Thanks very much, Giles. Pleased to be here. Right, seven quickfire questions. Mac or PC? Oh, I'd love to say Mac, but I'm afraid I've been brought up on PC and I've never I've never had the time to make the switch. <laughs> there's a real there's a real sound of guilt there. I know. Well it's you know, you get all these um Mac evangelists and you know, once you've tried Mac you never go back. And I'm so tempted. I've got an iPhone and I've got an iPad, but my uh, bulk of my work is still PC based, I'm afraid. Okay. So it's not not completely binary then. No, no, no. Book or Facebook? Oh, book, always. McVitie's or Jacob's? McVitie's. I, uh, I did a student placement with United Biscuits and I have fond memories of eating Jaffa cakes straight off the production line. <laughs> Get them while they're fresh. <laughs> Absolutely right. Right, famous Phil's. Phil Collins or Phil Mitchell? Phil Collins. I grew up uh, loving Genesis and, and became a, a fan of Phil Collins. System one or system two? Uh, neither, and you can't choose between the two because they're not binary, so I'll have to say both. Perfect. Richard Shotton or Rory Sutherland? Oh, that's unfair. <laughs> <laughs> it's unfair. <laughs> it, <laughs> I love them both. They're brilliant. They're both brilliant guys. I respect both of them. Uh, I guess it depends whether, you know, what, what you're talking about, dinner party conversation or, or sort of who you'd want on a five-a-side team or I've no idea what the context is. Oh, let's go, let's go five-a-side team. I think, <laughs> again, difficult to choose. I, th- I think Richard might be a little bit more nimble around the pitch. That's fair. That's fair. Okay, finally then, client side or agency side? Uh, I have to say agency side. Uh, now I've experienced both. Um, I grew up and spent 25 years client side. Um, but now working for, for myself in a small business, I, I relish that autonomy. Um, and, and don't miss sort of bureaucracy and, and hierarchy and, and politics. Oh, okay, good answer. I'm sure it's there if you look look close enough in agency life, but but you've managed to avoid it, which is um, which is something to celebrate. Yeah, I think I think a lot of it's to do with the, with the size of the organisation and, and sort of decision making um, modus. So uh, yeah, I, I've been fortunate, I guess. Yeah. Okay. Good stuff. So Phil, what was your first? ever job and then what was your first marketing job my first ever job was um was a saturday job actually at um at a chain of stores which is long gone uh called mcfisheries <laughs> as the name suggests they sold fish uh, spooky that and they also sold uh, fruit and vegetables so it was it was a, a weird one because all my mates were getting saturday jobs uh, in sort of trendy places like uh like clothing and and jeans and, and whatever and uh, and, <laughs> and i was dealing with wet cold wet fish but the ups the upside was that I got paid much more than they did, so that then when you when you had your Saturday earnings to go out and blow on a on a Saturday night, uh, I had a lot more money in my pocket. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Did you enjoy the job? I did. It was 
there were some great characters there and I enjoyed working with, with customers, actually. It was my first sort of experience of, of customer service. Um, but it was hard work and, and some, some of it sort of deeply unpleasant in the sense that, uh, you know, the Saturday boys had to had to do all the weekly deep cleaning and that uh, that wasn't particularly nice but um but yeah it was great experience presumably a few years later you had your first experience in in marketing yeah yeah so i did a i did a thin uh sandwich course a business studies course and um i was sponsored by united biscuits and that involved a three six month placement so i spent six months in in a biscuit factory and then six months in on the road selling biscuits and uh, and then six months in the marketing department and i had a friend at school who who was always destined to go into advertising and, and he did and became a very great copywriter and, and creative director and he sort of got me interested in this whole creative industry and then when I had my six-month placement, and that really cemented for me that I just loved the whole process of of finding out what what people wanted, and then and then making something tangible to uh, to deliver against those those needs. Uh, and uh, I absolutely loved it. And then after graduation, I, I then um, rejoined rejoined the company briefly in in a marketing role. Oh, okay. And and so, what did you graduate in? Uh, in business studies. Um, where, and I, and I specialised in, um, I'm focused on on marketing. So I did my thesis in marketing, and uh, yeah. Oh, so it, it was it was a very logical route then into marketing. I- yeah, I think so, and I liked it because uh, one of the things I liked was it, no two days were the same. It was the scope was uh, wide ranging, and and I think this is possibly something that has changed over time because I see so much now written about our industry. Um, where marketing equals uh, communication, uh, and that's about it. Um, whereas when I, I know maybe it's a company I was I was fortunate to work with, certainly United Biscuits, but but then I quickly thereafter joined Unilever, and Unilever really took this idea, I think, as Procter did, where the brand manager was effectively managing director of the brand. So you were like the hub in a in a wheel, and you were you were profit accountable, and that meant you had to have fingers in in lots of different pies uh, and really be responsible for you know the the four five or six p's depending on how you you define it and uh, and ultimately delivering delivering the bottom line so communications was of course part of that but it wasn't all of it you had to you know really understand your brand whether it's a, you know, a physical product uh, in my case and in, in my experience and and its packaging and um, it, it's uh, its evolution it's it, the innovation strategy, uh, and then of course working with with all the sales guys as well, and and um, yeah, how do how do we how do we best promote this? How do we um, look at occasions? I mean, we were we were we were talking about stuff in in those days that you know now now people seem to have discover you know every year you hear you hear a new term come up you think well that's just what we were doing you know influencers well we were doing that you know 20 30 years ago um we just didn't call it that um and and of course we didn't have the channels in those days um you know pre pre pre-internet believe it or not you know back in the dark ages but we were doing the same principles so um yeah so that was my first sort of proper job and and the more i got into it the more i i found it uh, incredibly rewarding yeah well it's and it's great you made you made a, a few really great points just now but one of them that really stood out for me was how um and mark ritson calls it the the communification of marketing where people do become either too obsessed or simply aren't aware that marketing is more than comms which of course if you as you've as you've said and it sounds like a wonderful role to have uh, stepped into relatively early on in your career by by give, being given the responsibility of becoming the managing director of a particular brand, you're immediately aware of the whole range of responsibilities that role demands. Absolutely, and 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 the important thing as well is is understanding the knock on implications and impact of a decision in one area, and uh, that it you know it will feed through to other areas. Or, or what you do in one area, you have to you have to extend to other, uh, let's say, touch points. So you, everything has to be aligned. Everything has to be consistent. And and 
unbeknown to me at the time. It just kind of made intuitive sense um, that, you know, what you you say, what you see and you see what you say and, and this sort of stuff. And that, you know, the pack, the pack design had to fit with um, the brand essence and the brand proposition and your communications had to. And that, that sounds obvious, but if you divorce those two activities, you're not going to get alignment and you're going to get some sort of gap opening up between strategy and execution. And and what I've learned since then in terms of how the brain works and how associations are built, you know, memory structures and, and neural networks are built on the basis of, of what fires together, wires together. And, and the more consistent you are and persistent you are, the stronger uh, the neural networks and the faster the associations. And that's where you get mental availability that's you know the first the first brand that comes to mind in a particular context but that is built on a foundation of of learning and if you're chopping and changing and doing something and you're packaging that doesn't fit consistently with your communications for example then then you're weakening those those memory structures uh, I, I, one of the one of the most important lessons i think i ever learned and at the time again it it kind of felt right but i didn't know precisely why was I'm I was brand manager on OXO in in Unilever and I was invited out for for lunch by the JWT account planning director and I thought oh, this is nice you know agency lunch uh, sort of right right the afternoon off and um, she sat me down and we dispensed with the pleasantries and then she looked me straight in the eye and she said listen Phil I've worked on this brand a lot longer than you and I'll be around working on this brand long after you've moved on so my strong advice to you is don't fuck it up and, and I was quite taken aback um yeah I thought hang on I'm the client you can't talk to me like that but yeah she went on to explain and and that actually has stuck with me for years and years and was probably one of the single most important bits of advice I ever received as a brand manager because often it's it's a lot smarter and a, a lot braver not to change strategy when you move on to a brand uh, you know, human nature dictates that we want to make our mark and uh, and typical new brand manager and, you know, whatever the tenure, average tenure in a job is now, it's shortening, I, I, I think, over time. Yeah, it's quite alarming. He or she wants to make their mark and that normally means a relaunch, a repositioning, new, new comm strategy or whatever. And it might actually be the worst thing you can do for a brand because you're playing with those memory structures. doesn't mean you need to keep things the same. 100% the same forevermore and you can't change stuff and, and there are lots of good examples I, and I give an example in my book about uh, links or acts um, in other countries where they have they have refreshed the communications at a at a signal level so the actual communication is different when they launch a new variant or a new fragrance or they move into a different uh, product category but the meaning of those signals has remained constant ever since links and acts were were launched and and that's what i mean about consistency and and persistency it's the sort of fresh fresh create you know being being consistently creative and and creatively consistent and all of that um, but it's a very very important point because that's how we that's how the brain learns and and ultimately we want people to make our brand the brand of choice and you're not going to do that if you've weakened or destroyed or changed memory structures no, well, I think um, that lady at JWT sounds fantastic. I mean, she delivered the advice quite bluntly, but clearly it was very sound advice. Yes, yes. And, and you're right, people do have that, you know, it must be like a, a human, like an inherent want to make their mark, which is understandable. That doesn't necessarily mean between any kind of visual or, or, or otherwise um, change to codes, your brand codes and your signals. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. How much do you think your career was uh, benefited from your time with United Biscuits, literally being on the road and and and, and selling and and having that exposure to the factory and, and and everything in its entirety? I think I think my marketing career benefited enormously because uh, my, that experience made those areas of the business tangible to me. Uh, if I hadn't been there, if I hadn't had to drive around. Yeah, Southall um, selling cases of um, cheddars to um, independent grocers. 
and I and all I'd done was gone from college into marketing and then tried to think about promotions and sales aids and point of sale for those channels. I wouldn't have any concept of what of what the reality on the ground is like. Uh, and similarly in in production, you're learning and understanding the the constraints under which they operate um, and uh, you know, how to do things and, and how not to do things helped enormously. So if I wanted to make a change to packaging or introduce a, a short run of uh, promotional packaging or something, I would be able to empathize and, and uh, understand the implications. And it helps also, of course, building some, some personal relationships because you know, then they know you. You're not just this sort of Johnny Nobody, who's, who's popped up in head office and is trying to dictate and tell you what to do. This is someone who's actually spent six months, um, you know, mixing dough and and packing biscuits and shifting pallets and stuff, and and has a not a perfect handle, uh, but has a better handle on uh, on the realities of uh, business than than someone who just comes fresh out of college. So I think it really it really did help. Yeah, I was I was hoping you'd say that, and and, and expect, half expecting you to as well, simply for, for that that visibility of that whole lifespan of, of of how something is produced and understanding the the different channels and understanding sales. You you make the point yourself. We can come on to later about often when researching focus groups often don't know the answer because of the context you're asking them in is so different to the context of say shopping. So a packaging redesign, as you, as you mentioned in your answer then is only really understood in the context of where that packaging appears. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's um, one of the key reasons I got into the whole decision and behavioral science area was because I'd, I'd always been innately curious about, uh, why people do why people did things um, from a marketing point of view? Why would they buy a brand or not buy a brand? And and had to rely on the let's call them traditional techniques um, as as they were uh, understood you know twenty twenty years ago thirty years ago. So quite typically qualitative and and then quantitative. But often frustrated that what people said versus what they actually did were very different things. Uh, and and that's that goes for quant research as well. I think I remember seeing a, a meta study by um, TNS at the time. One of their guys had had looked at thousands of quant studies they'd done on purchase consideration, um, and then went on to look at actual purchase behaviour. And I think he found a correlation of something like 0.27 between stated purchase in, uh, intent and actual purchase behaviour. Which is woefully low, and and you know we've we've had this thing for years about eighty percent, eighty to ninety percent of new products fail in their first couple of years after launch, and and you think well why why is that? Because the, I would bet the vast majority of those products are researched, and people have said they will buy them. So why is there this gap? And and in decoded, I look at the example of. The Tropicana uh, orange juice redesign, where the the new design met all of the actual standards they had, which were that the the new design had to be fresher than the original. It had to be a cleaner design, uh, cleaner looking design than the original, and more modern than the original. Uh, and when you judge it against those criteria, it absolutely wins. But then they put it on shelf, and no one could find it. Uh, and people have seen that Tropicana was out of stock, and you think, well, there, there's something missing here. It's either either they're asking the wrong questions in terms of the what, the content, or the way that they're doing the research, the how is uh, is suboptimal. So, so what what could it be? And I really had my eyes open when I in my last role at T-Mobile, I'd, I'd commissioned research around Europe, um, very expensive, very time consuming. And it was giving me frustrating answers. And when, when I discussed um, the results with some of the local countries, they, they were scratching their heads and, as well and saying, this, this just kind of doesn't feel right. And someone introduced me to Decode, so that the company I now work with, and Decode was founded about 13 years ago in, in Germany by a neuroscientist and a psychologist. And I got them in and gave them some some little sort of tests if you like some tasks you know what tell me about this ad why do you think this ad would work or not work and they they, they just told me there and then uh we came up with very plausible sounding reasons which i'd never heard before i'd never heard the sort of 
angle that they that they had and i commissioned them on on a small piece yeah. of work and and that that came back making perfect sense and it was almost like for me it was like jigsaws were falling into pieces in the jigsaw were falling into place and completing the, the the picture and they just you know the more i work with them uh, and and the t-mobile relaunch was was based on the foundational principles that they they used about what motivates human behavior and and the results took us all by surprise I and mean, the the flash mob dance ad at london's liverpool street station which is t- 10 years old now but you know 41 million youtube views is more than any john lewis christmas ad <laughs> just putting it out there just put it out there just just say it but but yeah. just for context right because it's you know john lewis christmas advertising is famous and every, and it's rightly lauded um and uh, but you know this this ad was pretty powerful the the, the one ad Flash mob uh, dance, as we called it, um, increased sales by forty nine percent. I mean, it, it went out on a centre break of Big Brother on a Friday night, and that weekend, footfall into T Mobile stores doubled, according to the the traffic monitors on the on the store doors. And we had never seen, I had certainly never seen a sort of cause and effect as powerful as that. And when I talked to the deco guys, I said, this is amazing. Everybody's stunned by the results. They, they kind of, they look puzzled and said, well, why, why are you stunned? Because you know, we deliberately built motivators of behavior into the brief. And, and that's what that ad is, is signaling. So why are you surprised it's, it's effective? And I thought, wow, this is interesting. This is something I have never, ever heard before. And so the more I, I chatted to these guys and they, they pointed me in the, in the direction of some more of the sort of pop psychology books. So um, Dan Ariely and Jonah Lehrer, um, you know, Predictably Irrational and How We Decide, stuff like that. This was pre, pre-Kahneman's book. Uh, and a few light touch um, academic papers, which, you know, if you're not familiar with them, are tortuous to read because they're just written in a very obscure language, but uh, some of the lighter ones. Um, and the more I read, the more I thought, this is, this is fundamental to marketing. This is, this is about consumer behavior and behavior change. And ultimately, marketing is about behavior change. We want people to buy our brand, buy more of our brand, talk about our brand, whatever. It's about behavior change. So why doesn't the commercial world know about this? And, and, when I talk to these guys, I'd say this, you know, this stuff's amazing. How, how do you know all this stuff? And they said, well, how come you don't know all this stuff? Because, you know, this is what science has been studying for the last <laughs> several decades. Uh, and, you know, whether it's neuroscience or cognitive psychology or social psychology and the more sort of cultural anthropological areas, semiotics, uh, behavioral economics, yeah, there are things to learn from all of them, and when you when you put them together, which is which is what we do, is what we call decision science, is sort of amalgam of uh, of these different fields. I think you get a better a better understanding of of why people do what they do and and how to change that. Yeah, it's it's to me, it's just quite bewildering that there's even a debate about whether this of how big the overlap is into marketing because it's not even an overlap it's at its its core and we've been fortunate enough to welcome both Richard Shotton and Rory Sutherland onto the podcast and I think I've made the same the same point to them you only have to look at basic human behavioral principles and sometimes they they might sound quite trivial so one I know Rory likes to give is how uh, in Italy, you don't accrue driving points. You you start with ten, and and you and they get taken away every time you commit a driving offence because of the power of loss aversion. And and so small examples like that do sound quite trivial and silly, but there's so much. There's so much. You only have to read the Choice Factory for, you know, twenty. I think it's twenty five in Richard's book, which is so easy to apply. And 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 obviously your own book, Decoded. So to me, it's just so obvious because we're, we're dealing with human beings. Absolutely. And I, I think, you know, p- part, of the, part of the problem is, uh, in, in terms of gaining wider acceptance, is that, uh, and I count myself amongst this, because I experienced the same, the same uh, feeling. You grow up with a certain mental model and a certain worldview and paradigm for 
how communication works, for example, or, or why people do what they do. And um, often that is received wisdom because that's, you know, it's the way we've always done things around here in certain organisations. Or it's um, it's in ad agencies uh, as well because they, they have a view of how communication works. Uh, it's the research companies as well who, of course, have a, a vested interest um, in their own commercial models and, and not wanting to change those. But also, we are victims of our own of, of these very same biases. So, you know, there there is a bias called the Semmelweis reflex, which is the propensity to reject new information if it contradicts our existing beliefs or, or paradigms. Uh, and and we have the you know the status quo bias, and we we default back to what we know because it's familiar, and that that means it's safe. Uh, and anything unfamiliar, any any change has two implications. One, it's risky, and ultimately that's all about survival, whether it's whether it's within a job or and ultimately as a human being. So you know survival is is a pretty pretty strong motivator. Um, and uh, and and the other thing is it's very effortful. It's mentally taxing to stop going with the flow using system one because that's what we've always done so it's fluent and it's 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 cognitive ease uh, and engage system two because that's tiring it burns a lot of uh, of energy and uh, and it's about learning something new it's a bit like why i haven't switched over to to a mac wholeheartedly because it's it's difficult yeah yeah there's friction there isn't there yeah exactly having spent so many years on a pc um, it will take me time and be very effortful to learn a new way, uh, and that's you know, that's the same with, under, with with changing your view of of human behaviour. If I've got a mental model for how marketing works or communications work, then um, uh, then if you're asking me, you're expecting me to change that, then then I've got these inbuilt biases to to kind of prevent that happening. So that I think that's behind why the adoption and acceptance of behavioural science, decision science, uh, is not more widespread. So you've probably answered this already. I was going to ask if there was a key moment that, that prompted your shift to decision science and your interest in decision science, but but clearly the work you did with T-Mobile and, and, and Decode um, Agency must have been the significant moment. Yeah, it, yeah, it absolutely was. And it was the more I talked to the guys from Decode, and they they'd come from, you know, what I mean, one had done postdoctoral research in in neuroscience. Um, the other was a was a cognitive psychologist. So they they had a lot of experience from science and academia, but they'd very what they'd managed to do, um, which is quite rare, I think, is is to make the transition to the commercial world and apply their knowledge to commercial business questions so anything I any question I asked them they could answer and I and I'd never ever experienced that they they had a, a a different way of looking at things and explaining things so you know the role of context for example uh, I, I'd never even thought about that and and you know coming back to the your point about packaging you know, as a brand manager I had looked at pack designs on my desk or on a designer's Mac in isolation, you know, and we debated all the nuances and little tweaks and changes and whatever. And the, you know, one of the first things that the decode guys said was, well, firstly, there's change blindness. So if you only make subtle tweaks, they probably won't even be noticed anyway. But more importantly, you have to view the pack in the context in which it's going to be bought. There's no point looking at it on on your desk because no one no one buys it off your desk, and it's, it sounds so obvious, but you'd you'd be amazed at the number of people who don't do that those you know those shelf tests and or of physical or virtual stores or whatever just to see how the thing performs. Is it is it perceptible in peripheral vision? I didn't even realise that the vast majority of our vision is blurred and loses color saturation so only two degrees is pin sharp and so if you're pushing a trolley down a supermarket aisle or even when you're online and you're looking at a screen the, the things at the edge of the screen are going to be blurred and and lack color compared to the your your foveal vision the, the two degrees so 
just doing something simple like blurring an image to see if what I've what I've changed is still perceptible. You see in Decoded, I've done that with the old and the new Tropicana packs, and it's very clear when you blur them, you just don't get that the new one is Tropicana any longer because they've they've dropped the distinctive assets such as the orange and the curved green logo, which are still perceptible under peripheral vision. So if I'm pushing a trolley down the chiller aisle, I, I still get that there's Tropicana to the left or the right of me. But with the new packet, it just doesn't even get into the brain. So stuff like this, which it sounds so simple, but few people do it. And and I just was completely unaware of it until these guys told me about it. It does it does sound so simple. And 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 I'm not surprised at all how few people do it because it's a point that we constantly make here. And I find myself making it frequently if we're designing something for social, then view it in the same context. So look at it within that social media's app. Too often people are reviewing work whether it's screen based or whether it's a print ad or whatever as if it was being suspended in an art gallery and everyone was going to crowd around looking at it but but the, but they're not and that i mean that goes for everything that goes to the copy goes to absolutely everything that makes up the content of the piece of comms but often we do we sweat over the copy as if everyone's going to sit down and read it word for word <laughs> yeah absolutely and you know and if the, uh, again understanding things like perceptual hierarchy if we have a visual that that has a human being in it, there's there's greater than 80% probability that uh, another human being will fixate on that human in the visual within the first couple of eye movements. Uh, there's nothing more rewarding to the brain than another human being. And so you can have the most beautifully crafted copy, but if you've got a person in there, they, the viewer won't even necessarily look at the copy. Yeah, well, your um, the Tropicana example in the book is is wonderful, and the other the other point, which is obviously worth making on that, is it takes time and it takes resource and serious investment to to get that familiarity of your distinctive assets or brand codes, whatever you want to call them, in the consumer's head. So brands that alter those or play with them too much. Can, can do so much damage often you know without intent oh totally and yeah, no one you know no brand manager does does a redesign like that with the intention of, of losing 27 million dollars in sales for sure <laughs> um but you, you're absolutely right i think it is just naivety and, and ignorance ignorance in the you know in the in the positive sense of of simply being unaware of of this sort of uh, principle because you're absolutely right if i have distinctive assets why would I lose them? Why would I want to change them? We we have a, a study which we call iconic assets testing, which which does exactly that to, to um, identify quantitatively using a, um, a system one type test what uh, what a brand's distinctive assets are and those of, of competitors. And one of the most interesting um, phrases that a client said to me was, "We're about to write a brief for a redesign." And we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. But to be honest with you, we don't know which is which. And that that was great to hear because that's exactly where you, you need to be um, in that state of, uh, of unknowing before you write a, a, a design rebrief. Because otherwise, it's about subjective opinion and liking. And you just have debates internally and with your agencies about, well, I think this or I like that. And this is not this is not absolutely it's 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 um absolute quicksand for a for a brand because because it's not about subjective opinion here it's it's about objective fact you know there will be like the orange on Tropicana, it is a it is a distinctive asset then having identified that then you have a strategic choice you know do i keep it and exploit it or not or how do i treat it but at least you you're starting from that position of of knowledge yeah, and equally, it doesn't matter at all. Or, or, you know, if someone likes your distinctive asset, if it's distinctive, you associate it correctly with my brand. Job done. Absolutely, yeah. And and as long as it also um, conveys the the correct uh, semantic meaning, you know, if it's a color or or a shape or whatever, it will it will have a meaning. You, you when the brain rec- when it perceives an object then the brain does two things simultaneously. It metaphorically asks the question, what is it? But also, what does it mean? What does it represent? And it, it searches associative memory to, for pattern matching, 
So, you know, if I have uh, a certain color, then and that and that color is strongly associated with a the brand, then not only will the brand be activated, but also the meaning of that color will be activated simultaneously. So it's important to understand, particularly when you're developing new assets that you want to um, you want to become iconic in the future. It's very important to understand that that meaning because that's that's culturally learned, that's culturally embedded, and uh, and you can't change that stuff. Um, easily i mean it, you know it changes as fast as culture evolves basically so so deco let's talk let's talk i mean we, we've, we've obviously dipped in and out of the book already but four years after the wonderful and hugely successful t-mobile flash mob you published decoded was that something you'd already you had always intended or planned on publishing a book and authoring a book, or was that were you just so compelled to to put this all down in print and, and release it? We've spoken to lots of authors on the pod, and it's it's always really interesting to understand how it how it happened. Yeah, I think um, it was it was really I think a way to uh, codify my my own journey uh, through this and and what I felt was missing um in in the market and and of course you know the book a book is is important uh because it it creates a frame for for me as an author uh it also helps you know with business commercially it's a it's a sales tool uh as as well as being um you know something that people of course hopefully find useful but i think the way the the real reason for it was was me wanting to find a way to spread more efficiently what I'd learned because up to that point it was a question of either um rocking up at conferences and and doing a you know 30 45 minute presentation or knocking on doors uh, and trying to do that but um actually having a book then gets your your message out to far more people so so that's really that was really the genesis of it of wanting to get the get my learnings codified and and out to more people and i was very um keen to do it in a way that a brand manager or an agency um, manager would understand so uh, yeah i'm not a i don't have a phd in neuroscience uh, mm. or or psychology um and in many ways that that's an advantage because what i hope i've been able to do is is sort of translate from from those fields and those those worlds into what the application and the implication is for for business and uh, you know with with the sort of checklists at the end of each chapter there's there's some easy ways to to bring bring the principles to life and ultimately that's what it's all about you know it's about helping people become more effective more efficient in in what they do um so that was that was really the the genesis of it yeah, and and also it put your you know put you in a, an advantage to better articulate it to the vast majority of of your readers who also wouldn't have had a, a psychology related um, degree. Yes, indeed, that's absolutely right. Yeah, there's there's so much in the book we could we could talk about, and we don't want to give it all away. But another area which I which I love is 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 where you talk about the uh, just pricing and frames of reference being significant in someone's perception of something seeming expensive or cheap the idea that it's not a, it's not a binary thing it's only expensive or cheap relative to something else yeah yeah well perception is always relative it's never it's never absolute um and the the whole sort of nespresso concept is is interesting in itself because if you compare the price of nespresso capsules to a jar of coffee on the shelf they're, they're ridiculously expensive uh, in terms of the number of cups of coffee you get, so you'd you'd never buy it. And and if that was the re- if that was the context in which you researched it, um, I would think you get a lot of people talking very negatively about Nespresso. Now, yes, it might be great quality, but there's no way I'm going to pay that when I can buy a jar of X. Um, but if you reframe it and compare, change the context to, so how much does your coffee cost you at Starbucks or Cafe Nero or Costa or wherever? Then suddenly Nespresso looks incredibly good value, and uh, and for a comparable cup of coffee for a very good quality. Now, obviously, you know the context is different because you you don't have the physical location of a of a Starbucks or whatever, 
that's true. But to get a, a barista style and, and quality cup of coffee in your home uh, for a fraction of that price suddenly changes the game. Um, and, and we're always doing this. You know, if I, if I show you a picture of a, of a circle and ask you, is it a big or small circle? You, you can't answer unless it's next to another circle and if that's bigger or smaller. So that's, that's what the brain is doing all the time, always this, everything being relative. Yeah, fantastic. I, um, I quoted you in the intro suggesting that marketers are, well, it's probably unfair to say that marketers are in la-la land, but you at least suggested that this area of study is a route back into the boardroom. How, um, how do you think so many marketers did end up in la-la land? Do you think it was primarily down to the point we made and discussed earlier about being too comms focused and not more business oriented? I think that is true um, because what um, what has always been difficult to prove, and this is this is where the work of Bennett and Field uh, is very helpful. I think looking at the sort of short and long term measures, what's always been difficult to prove without the luxury of econometric models is the impact of your, of marketing activities on the bottom line, which you know the, a lot of the board are are, are driven by um, return on investment. And uh, um, yeah, I can I can do that for uh, an investment in a bit of capital equipment in a factory, or I can do that uh, if I invest in in expanding my sales force or whatever it might be. But to do that for a bit of comms is is a lot more difficult and and involves a lot more assumptions. So I think that's part of the reason. I think there's another reason, which is that. Market, as marketers, we always seem to be seduced by the shiny new thing, you know, this uh, the dog that barks at every passing car. And, um, and looking at, at short-term stuff, uh, I, think that, I think that hasn't helped either. You know, but if you, you only need to go look at any marketing social media or any of the um, conferences that are around or the marketing publications, and you'd think, you'd think we're doomed, you know, everything's changed, nothing's the same, this blah, blah, blah. And, and it, there's a sort of anxiety to, um, to always keep up, you know, whether it's fear of missing out or just I need to be, you know, I need to get all over our influencer strategy because everybody else is. So it's sort of the social norming uh, bias, if you like, um, at, at, at play. And I think, you, we, you know, we only have capacity to do certain, a certain finite amount of things in, in terms of time and investment. And I think the combination of those has, has led to marketers just neglecting the basics. And, uh, you know, if I, whenever I talk to clients, I always try and bring it back to by asking, you know, well, why, why are people doing that? And what is the behavior you're trying to change? Not going downstream in terms of, you know, what's our TikTok strategy or whatever it might be. It's like, come back upstream, guys, because there's a behavior change issue here you need to define first. And, and that's what, you know, that's what I would, I would certainly urge marketers to, to try and get back to those, those basic tenets and basic principles of behavior. Yeah, and no, I agree. It's strategy before tactics, isn't it? I'd, I, it would be so refreshing. Maybe we should do it. Take out a stand at one of the big marketing conferences and just have some, a big banner saying, the principles haven't changed one bit. Yeah, well, Bill Burnback had this lovely quotation about it being fashionable to talk about changing man, whereas what we should focus on is unchanging man. Because it's true, you know, all this, all this complete bollocks about how generations are different one from the other. Well, I think you know, Mark Ritson has done a great job at debunking that, as have many others. But, you know, it is it's a fact that we are still driven by the same motivations as our ancestors and we will continue to be driven by those motivations. So guess what? Why don't you spend a bit of time understanding what those are first and then how that plays out in your category with your brand, et cetera, et cetera, before just leaping onto the, oh my God, we need to do something different. Yeah, we're huge fans here of Stephen King's JWT planning guide, which I think he originally penned in the early 60s. Yeah. Which would probably blow the mind of any social media agency out there listening. 
I think it would if they were even aware who Stephen King was. Uh, and I think there's there's also, you know, compounding this whole effect is the sort of ageism in particularly in agency world. And, um, you know, if, if someone said, well, look, you know, here's this, here's this amazing document, I, I think the initial reaction would be, well, that's, you know, that's 40 years old or whatever. What's that got to do with today? You know, where, where does it say digital in there? And uh, and people lose sight of the fact that actually there's some some enduring principles. And, and a lot of these very smart guys, you know, Stephen King, Paul Feldwick is another very, very smart um, planning guys, Mark Earls as well, I would count in there, have, have really nailed some of these principles. And and they've done it because they're they're bright guys. They've got a lot of experience, and they've they've read around the subject. They've they've taken time out to understand what's been studied, and that's you know that's the whole thing behind behavioural science as well. What what is known already? You don't need to reinvent this stuff. It's already there. You just need to tap into it. But treating treating the outputs of things like Stephen King's paper as well, actually, this uh, there could be some gold dust in here rather than a knee-jerk reaction of, well, it's 40 years old, so we ignore it. Yeah, absolutely right. Absolutely right. How do we get research right then? Because you mentioned about focus, the, the focus groups in the Tropicana example. Is there is there a right approach to marketing? Um, you touch on that again in, in, in the book, and I know you're a fan of the right type, but but presumably it's a mix. Yeah, it, it always is. It's never it's never either or. And, and again, we... <laughs> The answer here, as I've found, is to turn to science and academia, because if you if you look at the way that these guys and, and, and ladies approach issues, you know, they, they might have a generate a hypothesis, then they will seek a method that is valid to measure or test the hypothesis. And that's exactly what we should be doing. So, for example, if we want to understand advertising uh, we want to look at advertising comprehension. Okay, so the the task is what did the viewer take out of that piece of advertising? That as a task is a reflective mental process. Reflective mental process is our system two, and therefore it is perfectly valid to ask explicit questions or open-ended questions or or whatever. So, so you you come back upstream and say, what's the task, and therefore what mental processes are engaged? Therefore, what method should I use? And it and that that will always see you see you right. Conversely, if you want to look at let's say uh, emotional response, that is a an automatic um, reflexive mental process, which is which is system one. So you need to uh, employ a method that uh, that is valid accordingly so that that's that's the way to look always the way to look at it i i think with focus groups in particular you do have the issues of context and social bias and um respondent bias self-reporting all of that but if you've got a smart moderator particularly if they've been trained in techniques that will take all of these biases into account we've, we've got um, a couple of people on our team who are changing training something called morphological research which i i don't begin to understand but is a way of um getting around the system to uh, sort of gatekeeper effect you know uh, being a policeman on what we what we self-report so you can get more to the the reflex system one then then it can be a, a valid um research method but again it comes back to what what are you using it for is it is it generative we often use it uh, in a generative state to to elicit language um, and phraseology that we then use in quantitative testing so it, it's great for that purpose um, or are you actually using it as a as a gatekeeper itself uh, you know to pick a winner out of pack design or or whatever it might be and then you've got then i think you need to be need to be careful because again it's it's the context thing you know i don't decide on what pack i'm gonna buy in front of five strangers in a room in watford one evening it's um uh, yeah there's lots that can get in the way of of the, the true true response yeah and i i also think um um, so, so Henry Ford said, if I'd asked people what they wanted, they'd have said a faster horse. I think we need to leave a bit of space as well, don't you, for for innovation or for for just magic or you know, Rory Sutherland might call that luck. 
Totally. Yeah, absolutely right. And, you know, and a- Apple's a very good example of that as well. You know, bringing out the iPod. Uh, well, Sony Walkman was there already. And um, so you might argue, and, and, and I'm sure if, if it had been researched, people would have said, well, why do I need this thing? But then with a proposition of a thousand songs or 10,000 songs in your pocket, uh, suddenly you reframe it. And um, yeah, they've got design excellence as well, of course, that, you know, um, ergonomically and aesthetically they are they are incredible products so yeah i think you know as you say people don't know what they don't want or what they or what they what they want uh, when when it doesn't exist when it's completely new to world um so yes there has to be some space for for that complete white space work yeah, I'm doing my um, second mini MBA with Mark Ritson at the moment and in brand management. And he keeps reminding all of our all of the students to do a little prayer for imperfection. Right. Uh, just to remind us. Just to, I, think, I think he does it just to just to reduce the anxiety in the classroom, to be honest. But it's just to remind us all that 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 nothing is ever perfect. So and, you know, that that is valid for everything. So even just a bit of research is likely to be infinitely better than no research. Yeah. You don't have to, you know, it's so easy and I'm guilty of it, certainly, of of worrying so much about something being perfect, but allowing that space for a bit of luck or just imperfection, as Mark said, is important too. I'd like to ask you a couple of listener questions. Yeah. So asking the general public for their opinion, be it on Brexit or boat names, is notoriously fraught with danger, but that's not stopped us asking. So we've selected two as usual, starting with Maria. Maria asks, is there anything fundamentally different in your decision science approach at Decode, depending on whether a client is B2C or B2B? Oh, that's that's a really interesting one. And the answer is yes. But um, not for an obvious reason. The, the obvious thinking that I've experienced is, is people, people always say, well, B2B's, B2B is totally different from B2C. And you have to remember, of course, that the, people don't swap brains, right? They don't put a B2B brain in when they, when they go to work. It's still the same brain that they have as a consumer and uh, as someone who experiences communications when they're you know when they're sat on the sofa in the evening or on their on their phone or device or whatever it might be so so the the brain is the same the principles by which it operates are identical b2b or b2c there's there's no difference what can and and often does um uh show up as key differences are the are the goals that um drive the individual so in a B2B context, the goals tend to be more around what, what we call discipline and security. So it's the old thing about no one ever got fired for buying IBM. A B2B buyer needs needs precision, they need control, they need logic, they need efficiency, functionality, they need protection and reassurance in, in a way that B2C customers don't necessarily so so there are different goals um and also the you have to realize that b2c customers are not sort of driven by kpis either uh, which a b2b customer is so so when you're marketing to them it's important to understand what they how they how the b2b buyer is being measured internally and uh, and that can of course change your communications so it's re- i think it's the real fundamental bit because the the real fundamental bit in what i've learned about behavioral science is that we are goal directed uh, in our in our behavior and motivation is driven to to achieve certain goals and where where a b2c customer might be driven for example by something that's uh, about excitement or novelty or curiosity or or change a b2b buyer um, that may be anathema to them they may be in a psychologically very different space because they might need security and regularity and control, which is the opposite of change and excitement and variety, if you like. So under, understanding those goals is um, is fundamental to, to looking at the difference between B2B and B2C. Question two is from Colin, and Colin says... I saw on your Twitter that you reference via the work of Lisa Feldman Barrett, 
that ideas in neuropsychology like nature or nurture and facial coding are dead. I was quite surprised but grateful for this insight. Are there any other common misconceptions and things that are just plain wrong in this field? Oh, interesting one. So so just to expand on, on Colin's question, the, I retweeted uh, a tweet from Lisa Feldman Barrett. Um, she is a uh, neuroscientist and neuropsychologist, uh, an academic who has published, a, in, in our view, a great book called How Emotions Are Made. And the piece that she wrote um, was about killing zombies in October as it's coming up to Halloween. And she said there are a lot of zombies in neuropsychology. And she cited a few. And one, one of them was the nature versus nurture approach. And what she says is it's not binary in, in, you know, in the same way we talk about emotional or rational. It's, it's never binary. There, there's evidence that it's a combination. So she was saying, you know, if people talk about is it nature or nurture, you should say, well, it, it's both. It, it's neither one nor nor only the other. It's it's both. Facial coding is another one. I mean, she she has recently published a meta study that she did, I think, with about five other scientists and academics looking at a facial coding, which is founded on the so-called universal theory of uh, of you know, six or eight emotions being manifested in in certain facial expressions. And she's basically debunked that totally. Uh, and, and this meta study fundamentally challenges it because there are, there are, they are firstly, the, the way that emotion is, is expressed is not universal. And, and secondly, a certain facial expression can mean many different uh, emotions as well. So she's, she's fundamentally challenged uh, that. Um, are, are there other, other ones? Yeah, I think my, my, favorite bugbear is is the emotional versus rational um because this has existed for so long in in our industry and it and it it's unhelpful but not only is it a false dichotomy because response communication behavior whatever you want to call it is neither it's not binary it's neither one nor the other and 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 it's unhelpful because it's driven people to thinking there's a they have to make a choice so we often hear well we need a product ad and we also need a brand ad you know because the product ad is the rational bit and the brand ad is the emotional bit well that's um, an interesting mental split and model but it's it's ridiculous because you know even if you take something like Silit Bang Bar- Barry Scott the Silit Bang spokesperson appears on screen with a real garish in your face bang, 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 tick marks coming up, no lime scale, no scum, eradicates this, that, and the other. And you could almost see the brief being written about, um, you know, this is about product efficacy, here are the reasons to believe, and everyone would say, well, it's a very very rational ad. But if you think about the neuropsychological goals that are activated by that ad, you could say it gives people a sense of control, and mastery over you know the problem in in whatever it is you're you're cleaning uh you get a sense of self-esteem uh, pride as well you know you can't tell me that self-esteem and pride aren't emotions or feelings that are evoked by by this uh protection and reassurance as well if you know if i'm if i think i've got um dirty surfaces in my home and there might be germs or whatever and and I eradicate them with this product, then it gives me a sense of protection, security, reassurance, maybe caring for others if I'm a if I'm a caregiver. Those are all incredibly emotional responses to a apparently rational only ad. So it's neither one nor the other. It's always it's always a combination of both. And that that I think would 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 help people understand how how communication can work better. Yeah, I mean, our industry in general is full of so many false binaries. It's something that Murray Calder uh, discussed on his episode. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the other thing is that people seem to have extrapolated emotional versus rational as system one versus system two as well. And, and, I, and I get, I think my hypothesis for that is People have done that because we are victims of our own system one, because system one jumps to plausible conclusions. And we've kind of already got these mental 
pigeonholes of, of emotional versus rational. But the, the true distinction is automatic versus controlled mental processes. So, you know, when, when you learn to walk, that is a controlled mental process. It's a very difficult activity to learn. But once you've done it, you can walk around now without having to think about it. You don't have to reflect on the process. It just happens. So it's become automatic. Because it's an automatic process, it's a system one process. But you wouldn't call walking emotional. So that's where I think also that's been a bit a bit unhelpful for people just to say, oh yeah, system one, that's all that's all about and only about emotion. And system two is only about um, rational stuff. You know, you ask people to explain how they feel about something that engages reflective mental processes. Those are system two processes, but they're talking about feelings. So you can't divorce the two. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Is, I mean, to be honest, this this is um, a, a slight step away, but but the point about the um, non being non-binary even Binet and Field's wonderful work, The Long and Short and everything subsequently with um, um, their, their recent papers, people fall into the trap of treating the choice being long or short, but actually long feeds short and short feeds long. They, they need each other to coexist. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Again, it's a, that you can't, you can't just pigeonhole them and, and separate them. It just doesn't, the brain doesn't do that. So it, it's just impossible to do. Yeah, and the long does tend to be the more emotional, so I'm sure maybe there are parallels there, actually. Uh, so the final part of the interview then, uh, Phil, are our four pertinent poses that we put to all of our guests. Number one is what advice would you give to your younger self? <laughs> right. Um, I would uh, I would actually have chosen a different degree subject. I would, I would have chosen psychology. Uh, and now nowadays there's an explosion in uh, the number of degrees you can do both undergraduate and, and postgraduate uh, qualifications in this whole area of behavioral science uh, whether it's sort of hard cognitive neuroscience or, or softer um, just consumer behavior I think that would have been fascinating to do and I, I genuinely envy the um, the grads coming through now for for getting a uh, a better grounding than I had in human behavior number two if you could banish one thing from the industry what would it be and why oh well just to recap definitely the emotional versus rational um it's unhelpful it's wrong and um once people understand how this truly works i think it's a lot it's a lot it will help people to become a lot more effective number three any books that you would recommend to our listeners other than uh, decode Thank you. Um, yeah, a couple. I think, as I mentioned briefly before, Lisa Feldman Barrett, How Emotions Are Made, is uh, is very interesting. Um, that's that's one of our sort of go-to books on, on emotion. Um, you mentioned before about the leaving room for imperfection, and, and one of um, – I'm a great admirer of Mark Earle's publications and his, his um, recent one, Copy, Copy, Copy – is a good example of how things evolve and new ideas are created um, by leaving room for imperfection, but also um, copying with imperfection. So that that one I would I would certainly recommend. And of course, just for a, um, a thumping good read because it's entertaining as well as weighty and important is is Rory Sutherland's latest one, Alchemy. We've, um, I, I think I've said this on a previous episode, but in case um, that hasn't been heard, I, I would, I would go further and recommend the audiobook version, simply because Rory narrates it himself. Ah, oh, perfect. Because it involves Rory in a microphone, there's a lot more said than's in the book. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> okay, fantastic. So lastly, we always dedicate every episode to someone and we bestow or hospital pass that honour, depending on your view, to our guest. So would you, uh, would you do the honours? Yeah, I would, I would dedicate this to the, the two guys who founded Decode, actually, um, Dr. Christian Shire and Dr. Dirk Held. Uh, Christian is the neuroscientist and Dirk is the psychologist because they're, they're to blame <laughs> they're the guys who completely upset my life and my career and got me to switch 
and set up a business on my own with no clients in the middle of the last recession um, <laughs> just <laughs> just because of their um you know their, their knowledge their enthusiasm and and how they help me uh, understand the the vagaries and the principles of of human behavior well this this show then i'm not sure whether we've never had um there to blame but um <laughs> dr shah and dr held you are to blame so you are yeah, this episode is dedicated to you. <laughs> Fantastic. So as a, as a final call to action for everyone listening, go and buy Decode now, the science behind why we buy. Uh, head over to this episode online via calltoaction.co. We'll share a link to Phil's great book and all of his recommendations from this episode. How else can people get more Phil Barden? Oh, um, easily they can um, they can email me. I'm happy to to answer questions and have discussions. So my email address is phil at decodemarketing.com. Decode marketing, all one word. And they could um, follow me on Twitter. Uh, my Twitter handle is at phil barden, and um, be happy to follow them back. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Phil. It's been an absolute pleasure and I've really enjoyed talking. Likewise, it's, it's been good fun. And thank you for the opportunity to, to chat. Oh, you're very welcome. And thank you to everybody listening. Please do feel free to get in touch with the show with everything from guest requests to questions to put to those guests. You can find us easily by looking up Gast online. You can follow the podcast on Instagram, it's CTA Pod, or simply email the show at hello at calltoaction.co. Try and I try and I try.